Jancy Dunn is the columnist of the New York Times Well section. Today, I'm sitting down with Jancy to talk about her just-released menopause book, Hot and Bothered. I'm Dr. Lauren Stryker, a gynecologist, best-selling author, and a nationally recognized women's health expert. If women are given good information, they'll make good choices. And I'm here to give you the inside information. There are a lot of books about menopause, and they basically fall into three categories. First are those books written by medical professionals who position themselves as being the top experts when it comes to hot flashes, vaginal dryness, and hormone therapy. And some are. But I can name a number of very popular menopause books written by those so-called experts who are not actually experts. They might have an MD after their name, but as most of you already know, an MD after your name is no guarantee that the person on the other end of the speculum knows anything about menopause. And even if it is written by a true menopause expert, most of these books are really boring and dry. And the last thing you need is more dryness in your life. The second category of books are written by non-medical people, usually a celebrity or even worse, an influencer, which is not actually a real job. These books generally include a lot of great personal stories and anecdotes, but are short on accurate information. If you're listening to this podcast, you're smart enough to know that vaginal steaming is not going to balance your hormones. And then we get to the third category, a Jancy Dunn book. Jancy Dunn is a connoisseur when it comes to writing about cutting edge research and scientific information based on exhaustive interviews from multiple experts, yet making it read like an edgy sitcom. Her new book, Hot and Bothered, is anything but dry. And as an investigative reporter and New York Times bestselling author of eight books, including How Not to Hate Your Husband After Kids, it's no surprise that she has once again gotten it exactly right. So welcome, Jancy, and I love your book. Thank you, Dr. Stryker. For you to say that, I can't even cope. I I really appreciate it. And I, you know, that I quote you in the book and you were the absolute number one expert that I wanted. And I'm not flattering you. I already wrote the book. I already got what I wanted. <laughs> I'm, I'm telling you sincerely that your voice is so singular. I love to hear you say that, but honestly, I would love your book, even if you didn't quote me a lot in it. And no, really, because you 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 got it right. I mean, you went to the right experts, you got the right information, which, yeah, a lot of investigative reporters can do that. But you just, I mean, I love the way you write. It makes it so attainable and fun. And, and yes, like a lot of people who write about this. You you do weave your own story into it, but you do it in such a fun, relatable way that I can just vision, vision women sitting there and nodding and going, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. You know, you you mentioned that Hot and Bothered is the book you wish existed when when you were scrambling for information. So talk a little bit about your own hot flash journey and what kind of information you came across at that time. When I was in my mid-40s, I started getting what I now know are symptoms of perimenopause. And I was so clueless. I'm a health writer. I write about health and science. I have for 20 years. And I still, because there wasn't much information out there, I did not connect the dots. But don't you think, let me interrupt you for a second. Don't you think that one of the reasons that you did not connect the dots is because you were young? If that had all happened to you when you were 55, I think you would have immediately had that light bulb go off and say, oh, well, you know, here I am, perimenopause, menopause. But because you were young, I'm guessing why it wasn't so obvious. Exactly. You're just not in that mindset when you're in your mid forties, are you? I mean, I had a young child. I had a kid when I was almost 43. And so I was still in toddler land. My kid was going to mommy and me classes and I was just not in that realm at all. And so when I started getting, you know, dry skin and even hot flushes, I just couldn't connect that it was hot flushes. You just don't, just in the larger culture, you don't think that it happens in your 40s. You know, it just is this far off thing that's happening when I'm starting to wear like easy spirits, no shade against easy spirits, but like it just- (laughs) Grandma stuff, you know? Yes. 
And and you were as far from being a grandma as you can imagine because you had a little one. Exactly. And, you know, even though most of the people in the playground were a good decade younger than I was and they didn't understand any of my pop culture references, still, I just wasn't there. So I was clueless. And then, you know, and I went to a number of specials and I know that's very common too, that you can spend, you know, there's research, you probably cited it, a couple thousand dollars worth of, of specialists that you go and see because yeah. you just can't figure out what the deal is. And you're right. I didn't have that mindset. And also my mother, she, I remember her reading me free to be you and me. We talked about sex. We talked menstruation. We didn't, we didn't have the the menopause talk. One of the reasons is that most mothers have a lot of expertise when it comes to your first period and here's the pad and here's the pills you take for your cramps. But your mom was probably somewhat clueless about menopause herself. So how do you have that talk with your daughter when you really didn't know much about your own menopause. That is an excellent point because even when I very recently, my mother's now 81, and only recently when I started writing this book, did we have one conversation about menopause. It happened, it occurred like two years ago. And you're right, like she didn't put it into context because if we're not talking about it now, they, no one was certainly talking about it then. No. You know, she had a lot of mood problems. Even now she was kind of saying, oh, wait, that's that's probably why. I thought it was just because I had three teenage girls. That was probably part of it. It was too. probably a little bit of both. Uh, <laughs> I always so, say it's very inconvenient that menopause, perimenopause hits the same time as your husband's having an affair and your kids are piercing their body and you're losing your job. And it's like, are you kidding? Couldn't they have had menopause at a time when life was a little bit easier? But that's not how it friends, works. How many friends do you have that are um, going through menopause At the same time as their daughter is going through puberty. That's right. At least you have someone to give your tampons to. (laughs) Yeah, it's true. I have some ancient tampons in my cabinet that are probably like still have plastic covers on them, right? That's right. The super duper, you know. You're right. Like I wasn't, I never talked about it with my mother. But even what I find interesting, and I don't know if you find this with your patients, is I talk about everything with my friends. I have nursed my friends through the death of their parents and the most granular things you can imagine, life, death stuff, our sex lives, everything. Yet we didn't really talk about menopause, which is so, like we we internalized it so much. It's like fecal incontinence. It's just not a sexy topic. And it makes people feel like, oh, I hope no one thinks I'm having that. I mean, it's true. You know, when we talk about taboo topics, some topics are more taboo than others. And menopause right now, of course, you know, we're in this renaissance of menopause, if you will. I love how people are acting like menopause is a new thing, you know, and it's something, something we could talk about. But, but really what has changed is not that menopause is a new thing, but for a variety of reasons that you and I both know, it is suddenly coming out of the closet, so to speak. And books like your book, which we're going to talk a little bit more about, are are part of the reason for that. But you found someone to help you eventually. You went through the usual unnecessary tests and <laughs> multiple doctors and all of that. Yeah. And then, but you did find someone eventually who was able to figure it out what was going on and, and get you on the right path. Yes. When I first skipped a few periods, I thought, and I, I wrote about this, I thought I was pregnant and I mm. have one child, that was the plan. I never wanted more. That was just what we had hoped to achieve. And then can you achieve a child? I guess you can. You can. You can can achieve a child. Especially now. (laughs) Especially when you're over the age of 35. It's an achievement. When you're 18, it's no achievement. It just happens. So I was, again, I was, you know, I had a toddler and I was, I skipped a few periods. And at that point, my periods were all over the place. And I remember shaking Tom awake because I thought, oh, hold up. I, am I, could I be pregnant at the age of 44? Oh Lord. And I woke him up and I thought, I said, you know, Tom, you don't freak out, which always makes someone freak out. Right. But I yeah, said, exactly. Those words are not usually reassuring words. <laughs> don't it's panic. Like no offense, but yeah, yeah. you brace yourself. So I told him, listen, I've skipped a few periods and I think I might be pregnant and we have to have a, a talk about this. And we, we stayed up all night and we weighed the pros and cons. And we, we talked about finances and everything else. And finally we decided after this torture conversation, like, Okay. <laughs> to I'm maybe do a pregnancy this. test. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. CVS wasn't open yet, right? So we had mm. we had come to this conclusion. 
And then I took the pregnancy test and it was, no, I wasn't pregnant. I was perimenopausal. That's where my mind went. And I wonder- you know, Okay, in fairness yeah. to you, uh-huh. that's not an unreasonable thing to think. We know okay. that that happens to be an age group in the early and mid forties when there's a lot of unplanned pregnancies because people get very nonchalant about using contraception because they think there's no way I'm going to get pregnant. And in fact, many women do get pregnant. Yes. So it was not a crazy thought for you to think you you could be pregnant. I would just say, maybe you should have done a pregnancy test before you sat up all night and talked about finances and decided to sell your shoes <laughs> to pay for the new baby. <laughs> but you know, we, we, we tend to do that. Thinkers like us, you know, we, we think a little overthink things a, a little bit. <laughs> Sell your shoes. And expensive shoes have a lousy resale value. Tell me about it. eBay, I right? know. I just got rid of all my really high heels because I decided life is too short to have sore feet. Mm. And I'm embracing combat boots and nobody wants my my high heels. Not even my daughters. You know? <laughs> really? Oh, That's the like thing. A couple, you save the stuff pairs. for them, right? And then they don't want it. And you think, oh, but this like was- the China, we could go there. I have grandma's China and I have a daughter when she got married. I said, do you want grandma's China? And she said, no. And I said, really? And she said, no. How about the silver? No, <laughs> they just don't want it. They don't want it. So don't save your stuff for your daughter. So but anyway, so you, so you found, so you found someone who was helpful eventually. Yes. Uh, an OBGYN who really um, helped me sort it all out. And then I started delving into research and thank God for people like you, because there's so much misinformation out there mm-hmm. and we could do, we could sit here for hours and talk about all that. One of the things that struck me is, is you know, when you first contacted me and mm-hmm. I don't know if you remember, but you, you got me on a day when I was kind of overwhelmed with stuff to do. And I thought, oh, another writer that wants to talk to me and I just, I don't have time for this or something like that. And then I get it. And then I realized that you were interviewing all of my good friends. I mean, all of my best friends, like, you know, Pauline Mackey and Rachel Rubin and Mary Jane Minkin. I love Mary Jane Minkin and Rebecca Thurston. And these are like all my go-to menopause wonks that that I travel all over the world with and do lectures with. And they're the ones that write all these research articles. And I didn't want to get left out. I thought, well, <laughs> gee, if you were talking to them, you must be the real deal. And I wanted to be included. And and I was so glad that when I finally got back to you, you agreed to talk to me because I thought, you know. Well, my one holdout, I had a master list of all the top people. And and I, I got all of them. I mean, that's, you know, that's a really wonderful thing about plunging into this world is that people are very helpful and they're in it for the right reasons and they want to help women. And it just, and I've, I've been trying not to cry because, because of how they want to help women and, and how collegial they are and how Mm. all of you recommend each other's work. And there's not, well, but I'll I'll tell you the reason for that. Um, You know, you don't often see that kind of generosity, quite frankly, in other fields, Mm. but in our world, we are so tired of dealing with the misinformation and people not getting the right help. When we have someone who finally is doing this responsibly, it's like, great, let me connect you with the people who are also going to help you. Because I know a lot about menopause. You know, I don't have the level of expertise, say, of Pauline Mackey when it comes to cognitive function or Rebecca Thurston when she looks at the cardiovascular aspects of, of menopause. And I recognized you immediately from your questions to me. You can always tell when someone's interviewing you if they've done their work first, that that you had done the homework, that you did get it. And I thought, okay, I want to connect you with these people. And then, of course, every single expert I mentioned, you said, well, I've already talked to them. But how did you how did you worm your way into all these people's lives just based on referrals from other people? Yes, it was a combination of referrals because, you know, every referral I got was great. You know, and Mary Jane Minkin was probably the first person that I talked to when I went to her. And person. she was the best first person to talk to. Oh, I mean, she, you know the queen of follow-up. And so after I had a nice long conversation with her, I get a million emails just bristling with, with various, you know, people I should talk to and research to look at. And, and so starting with her was, was the way in which I did inadvertently. It was, she was available. I mean, just so generous with her time from there, it was fairly easy to do. You know, one of the things you may not know about uh, Mary Jane Minkin, the three of us all have something in common, uh, Dr. Mary Jane Minkin and and you and I, and we all love, love reading about the history of medicine. I don't know if you knew that about her, but for years she has sent me books that she thinks I'll enjoy 
that are about the history of this and that because she knows that that I read about it and I write about it. And in fact, um, one of the things I, I love about Hot and Bothered is in the very first section when you start talking about just the word menopause and the history of it. And I'm sure you did not read my hysterectomy book because why would you? But that's kind of how I start off with that is the word hysterectomy. What kind of feeling, what kind of information does that invoke in people? And then I went back and talked about the history of hysterectomy, which is really fascinating. But you, of course, got into the whole history of of menopause. And and then when you talked about the history of estrogen, Premer and Ad thing, you know, I have a history on uh, estrogen in, in my book, Half Flash Hell as well. And mm-hmm. you talk about Premer and ads and you mentioned your, your favorite ad. You want to mm-hmm. tell us how what your favorite ad is and I'll tell you what my favorite ad is. It's, and as uh, we're talking about the ads that were advertising Premarin, this is the very first uh, oral estrogen. Oh, yes. And and so they were in all the magazines, right? And in some newspapers, too. And it was about um, a woman who was getting on a bus and she was all angry. And somehow they made the ad into that the bus driver was having a terrible day because yeah. she was she was upset. And if she would just take the Premarin, then everything would be fine. There was tons of those. Oh, there was another one of... Um, of a man and his clearly terrified adult children and everyone was cowering because I guess she had just lost her mind and yelled or something and nobody knew what to do. And so it was a very fear-based ad about like she was going to unleash the beast. My favorite ad, which is in my book, is it shows a guy sailing and about how his life is so miserable because after he works hard all day and then he goes home to his wife, who's going through the change of life, is in a terrible mood. And if only she had taken Premarin, then men could be happy again. But but actually, if, there's a little bit different take about why they were so male-centric. When the Premarin ads came out, this was long before direct-to-consumer advertising existed. These were all in medical journals, all of them. And who were the doctors? Men. 100% men. So by directing these ads towards male doctors and they're thinking from their point of view, boy, you know, we've got to help the guys out there. And the way that we're going to help the guys out there is by giving their wives Premarin. And in fact, my father was a doctor, which is how I know this. I saw the ad in his journals and my mother, of course, took Premarin from the day it came out. So it is, it is crazy, but I think it's so important to go back and look at that stuff because not only is it fun and interesting, but it really sets the stage for why it is like we were talking about earlier that that we don't talk about it and just the whole thing about the male approach to menopause. I've actually doing a podcast with with three guys, um, which I'm going to call Men on Pause. And it's basically men whose wives, partners have gone through menopause or going into perimenopause. And I just kind of talk to them about what they were expecting, what they know, what they think. I don't, is that a good idea or is that a terrible idea? I don't know. That is an unbelievably fabulous idea because this is the one piece that we truly haven't touched on just as a culture, right? About what they think, because I think that's a wonderful idea. And and I wish you would in fact do a series because the misinformation, even though I'm that's partially my fault in my own relationship is that I didn't want to tell Tom every my husband everything that was happening yeah. with me. So he was well, left because it makes you sound like grandma. It makes you sound right. old. I mean, right. even when we talk about the word vaginal atrophy, which I never use, I right. mean, who wants an atrophic vagina? You know, dried up and pathetic and useless and old and so that's the language is a problem and the topic is a problem. Well, we'll see. Cause when I thought about doing this podcast, honestly, I thought of it as being a separate podcast, just a whole separate thing. So I'm yes. going to do it and see how it goes. And then just because I have so much time in my life and don't need any more stress, sure. <laughs> need more stress in my life. I'll start another podcast. I don't know. Cause I, I wrote in the book. I remember that when health magazine was still a magazine, they kind of went around. I remember one experiment they did is they went around with a camera and just asked guys, questions like what is menopause what is perimenopause and they weren't trying to humiliate them it was just to kind of shine a light on what people don't know and it was it was incredible 
They just don't. It's not like you're taught about it in schools, right? Well, you know what, though? I'm not surprised by that. I mean, first of all, they've done the same thing where they walk around and ask guys where the clitoris is and ask them to point it out. And and most of them weren't even in the ballpark. (laughs) And when I wrote my hysterectomy book, I interviewed men. The majority of them did not know what was being removed. They had no idea and they were too embarrassed to ask. I mean, a lot of them thought that truly their their wives were no longer going to have a vagina. They they didn't know what the uterus was. I have learned a long time ago, take nothing for granted. So I am not in the least bit surprised to hear that men don't know what menopause is because quite frankly, most women don't. And even when we talk about definitions, it makes me a little crazy that the definition we always give for menopause is when someone hasn't had a period for 12 months. Well, that's that's a terrible definition because one third of the women in the United States don't have periods for one reason or another. If you're already eliminating one third of the population from a definition, how can you expect women to, to even know what we're talking about? But there's a lot of issues with language. Let me ask you this. One of the things that caught my eye was your section on menopause cafes. And that phrase menopause cafes jumped out at me and I thought, what they like, you know, hand out fans and serve estrogen lace lattes. The heck is a menopause cafe? I'd never heard about it. So what's a menopause cafe? Okay. So it was started in the UK uh, a couple of years ago and it was based on death cafes. Did you say say death cafes? Like death death is in dead? As in the big one, right? And so it was death cafes and they were started um, in Europe. I've reached that stage in my life where I talk to everyone about everything. I'm the chatty person on the bus. That's your nightmare. But I, I just feel Meet like my husband, he also oh, really? he's a chatter. Oh. Oh. So he and I would. Yes, yeah, I can talk to a tree stump. I frequently do. But I do find that sometimes it's easier to talk to strangers about some of this stuff or just people that you don't know very well. And and. I don't know. It can it can cause you to be a little more forthcoming. So the menopause cafe. But wait, wait. Why do you think that is that it's easier to talk to strangers? It could be that when you're talking about how you suddenly pee yourself, which I'd like to get into yeah. with you, um, sure. you may never um, see them again. Or it could be maybe there's a freedom. There's no baggage. Yeah. Tell me about your experience with the okay. menopause cafe. The death cafe is where you get together with a bunch of strangers. This was face to face. It was pre COVID and you have cake and tea, and you talk about the mother of all taboo topics, death. People were very free with it, they found, because of the stranger element, which yeah. you're right. It's a very interesting question, like, why were people feeling so free? But they but they were. And so that took off. And then the founder, this woman in Scotland, she said, oh, maybe I want to do a menopause cafe, because that's maybe the second most taboo topic, right? Or sex, I guess. And So she set one up in Scotland in a little cafe and she puts out a little thing on Facebook and it says, come talk about menopause. There's no pressure. Just have a little cake. Um, And and what year are we talking here? When when was this? It was 2018, I think. So so recent, just a few years ago. Yeah. And um, so they set it all up and they thought, is anyone going to show up? And one by one, people filtered in. Originally, they had it so that if you weren't into the topics, they had a couple of rules. Anybody can come, any gender, anybody is is, is welcome, that you don't push any products. You know, they had someone on the first night talking about magnetic underwear. I don't know if this has come up in your practice. Oh, yes. It's all come up in your practice, oh, right? Yes. Yeah. And so she said, you know, none of that, no supplements, no nothing. You're just here to talk about symptoms, what's worked for you, confide in each other. And it was a big success. So it spread to um, like 16 or 17 countries. What's interesting, though, is it hasn't it's only it's very, very incrementally coming to the United States. And I did one. Like, what do you think about that? Well, I mean, if you look back at the UK, the other thing that I talk about in the UK all the time is the fact that they are the only country that has really addressed menopause in the workplace. Uh They have not only embraced it and put out a lot of initiatives and a lot of programs, but the government has actually mandated that that it is addressed. And here in the United States, it's the exact opposite, that we don't talk about it. So I think in many ways that set the stage for saying this is something that we are all trying to learn more about and that we are all trying to understand and we can help each other. We're in the U.S., we're still in the, oh, we're not going to talk about that. 
you know, the ageism and, and everything else. And we don't want to be targeted. It's like the me too, only the me too of menopause, that nobody mm-hmm. wants to be that person and feel like they're being discriminated against. So I think that's part of it. I mean, it's certainly not that they're less uptight in the UK than we are here. I don't know. What are your thoughts? That was, that's my only thing that I've come up with why it's it's so different. Well, I, I mean, do you think that, I really think the UK is, is ahead of everyone in the world in terms yeah. of their menopause friendly policies. It's not perfect, but yeah. I, every time I read up on what they're doing, I'm I'm just amazed that, yeah. that, you know, it's, it's in the dialogue that the mayor of London is talking about it, that at least, some, at least they're talking about yeah. it. You know, what's interesting is, is I look at my podcast episodes and I have, you know, 60 plus episodes out there. And I, I look at the analytics because I always want to know what are people listening to? What are they most interested in? And of all of my podcasts, the one that's at the top of the list is about um, weight and diet. And okay, no surprise. Mm-hmm. The bottom, the absolute bottom podcast that I have ever released is about work, menopause in the workplace. And it's, I'm shocked because I thought that that was going to be one that was really going to resonate and no one ever listens to it. So what does that tell you? I don't know. I don't know. But but clearly it's but clearly it's kind of a window into what people want to know and what people are interested in because I can reel off right now what the top 15 podcasts are and those mm-hmm. are also the the top 15 topics that people would bring up in the menopause clinic and okay. Work is very rarely on that list that they can't think they can't function that it's getting in the way of work. Yeah, we know it is. I mean, we we the, sure. the, the data is very very solid. Mm-hmm. So I can't explain it. I really can't explain it. What is it? Is it cynicism? Is it that people feel like it has to be a systemic thing? So why even bother? Because there's not going to be any change? Or I is don't it- know. Maybe it's the whole thing uh-huh. about women who are strong and successful have always just power through whatever comes their way. Bra is soaked to your blouse and you're still conducting exactly. a meeting. and. Exactly. Right. And you're running for the bathroom and don't make it. This is okay. So you keep a change of clothes in your desk and keep on going. I mean, what were the top three? So weight, not a surprise. What what else? Weight, skin and hair are always at the top. And I probably should do more on that. Mm-hmm. A lot of stuff on understanding that estrogen is not what's causing breast cancer and looking at that relationship, mm-hmm. looking at uh, different alternative treatments are always way up there like DHEA and all that, that, that does well. Um, okay. Quite frankly, when I do interviews with with interesting people um, mm-hmm. who have interesting points of view, the one on open non-monogamy has, has done very, very well. Nice. But as far as the menopause topics go, testosterone did well. Mm-hmm. Orgasm, um, my next book that I'm writing, if I can find the time to do it, is about postmenopause orgasm about halfway through because oh, no one has ever written about that and it needs to be written. So I'm writing that book. Half of it's on paper, half of it's in my head. I know exactly. I just need to get it down. You know how that is. Mostly think about it at two in the morning. But yeah, so those are that's what people are are listening to for the most part. I mean, there's a wide variety, and but a lot of it is is you know, guest Rachel Rubin. We all know how much fun she is. Oh. The one that we did on, I, I interviewed her on a need to know information about the penis in your bed. You can only imagine. So. <laughs> She needs she needs her own show. She needs like her own television show, I think. No, you and she. I do. Yeah. But then who would get a word in edgewise? You know, I just did this panel in New York and I was the moderator and Rachel was on my panel among other friends that you know. And and I love Rachel, but it was like, okay, Rachel, stop talking. You have to stop talking. I have to let someone else say something. This but it was. It you were was trying great. to jump in. You were like, D- I like. Were well, you I was the me? moderator, so it was my yeah. job. Oh to- boy to get other people in on the conversation. And it was uh, no easy task. I'm usually a pretty good moderator, but that was, that was challenging. All right. But, but moving on. Okay. So menopause cafe. So so we've already established you and I are going to start a menopause cafe in New York and Chicago. So they had one in Connecticut for the past two years that was online. It's funny. I was just looking it up. There's one now in California that I'm going to monitor. I don't know if it's online or not. I'm going to actually check when I'm done. But those are the only two in the whole United States. And online isn't the same. Sometimes you just need to get in a room with somebody. Yeah. But the part that struck me the most when I was reading about the menopause cafes was what you were just talking about, how it's so much easier to talk to a complete stranger about this stuff than your best friend who you have no problem sharing pretty much every other piece of information about your life. Chin hairs. Chin yeah. hair. I'll talk about chin hairs yeah. with my best friend, but but not about how sex became really painful. Right. Um, 
So yes, when I was in the, when, you know, I I kept everyone anonymous because I didn't want them to think some reporter was lurking, but I can say what I did, which is that I said, is anyone else peeing themselves? Because I did the thing where I started racing to the bathroom and it was just what we call the key key in the door incontinence, that the keys in the door and there's no way that you are going to get your pants down, not to mention put your groceries down before you're peeing all over the floor. And we laugh about it, but it's really serious. And the other thing is I I just did a episode on osteoporosis. And do you realize that many hip fractures are from women dashing to the bathroom? You know, because think about it in the middle of the night. I mean, this is well documented that what happens is, is women who are period post-menopause, they get up in the middle of the night, they are dashing to the bathroom and they don't make it and they slip in their own urine, fall down and break their hip. And when the paramedic comes, they don't say, I fell because I was incontinent. Mm-hmm. And it never goes on the record as the cause for the fracture. And ultimately, the osteoporosis was the cause of the fracture. But the right. point is, is that aside from how distressing it is and the social isolation and all of the other things that go along with incontinence, mm-hmm. I always I had I wrote an article once called, you know, your incontinence can kill you because we don't think of it in terms of it being a serious medical condition. And the reason for that is mm-hmm. because of the normalization of diapers, adult diapers. There's a multi-million dollar industry of people who are going to benefit from selling adults diapers. So they make it sound like it is normal for adults to pee their pants. Common is not the same thing as normal. When you hear, okay, I'm not the only one, I guess this is just the way it is. But to your point, while there are a lot of causes for incontinence, we certainly know that your estrogen tank being on empty is a primary cause for urgency, not to mention recurrent urinary tract infections, which is another thing that many women are plagued with. And they have no idea. And quite frankly, a lot of their doctors have no idea. They go to their doctor and they tell them it's age, it's age. And there's nothing you can do about it. Buy some diapers, do some Kegels, as as you well know from, from your research and your own experience, a vaginal estrogen product is going to, for most women, if not completely get rid of it, it is going to have an enormous, enormous impact. And that message is not getting out there. Changes your life. Changes my life. life. So let me ask you this, you know, one of the things in the book and, and what makes this book, of course, so much better than a lot of the other menopause books, than all the other menopause books out there that are written by non-experts, is that you did spend so much time talking to the people who are doing the research. I mean, the, the big research. It's Rebecca Thurston, who is, is someone who I adore, and she's a PhD, not an MD, and she has done so much incredible life-changing work. And one of the things that that she talks a lot about and that I write about in, in Hot Flash Hollow as well is the impact of of hot flashes, not just on quality of life, but on length of life, the impact on cardiovascular disease and cognitive function and and all of that. When you researched that, and when you spent time talking to Dr. Thurston, was that news for you or did you already know that? I already knew that just because I had done a lot of research at that point, but I can tell you, you know that, you know, the newspaper I write for and, and many readers do not know that they absolutely do not know that, and well, most a lot of doctors don't know that. I mean, the doctors are the ones saying to women, "Oh, it's just going to last a few years, not seven to ten right. which or more if you're black," and right. and and they say, you know, so just tough it out or get a cooling blanket when the doctors should be telling women, "No, this is something that's going to impact." Yes, and when I got off the phone with Dr. Thurston, I was shaken because the research is stark and it's pretty yeah. conclusive. It has a, a major impact on your life and on your cardiovascular health. And I would love for the message to get out there. And that's that's one thing that um, when I do publicity for this book, I'm going to hammer home. I don't know what what do what do your patients say? It's really interesting because you know, as you know, I have two menopause books that I have out there: Slip Sliding Away, Turning Back the Clock on Your Vagina, and Hot Flash How. Slip Sliding Away sells actually pretty well. A lot of women are interested in that and they want to read it. Hot Flash How, uh-huh. honestly doesn't sell very well. And I it, I think it's a better book. It's a much better book. It's much more thorough and I it's, it's a better book, but it doesn't sell. The only thing I can figure out is because women have this idea that eh, hot flashes, you know, they're not that important. And mm-hmm. if I just wait a little bit, they're going to go away. Think if women knew the impact that hot flashes have on their length of life and so many other medical conditions. Honestly, I, I think there'd be a lot more interest, but 
They don't know that. When patients come into the menopause clinic and and we ask them, you know, we always have a questionnaire with say 20 of their their symptoms. And then we always ask the question of, but what is the one symptom that you most want to get rid of? What is the most bothersome to you? And right. usually it's either in the vaginal dryness category or it's mm-hmm. sleep or it's weight. It's <clears throat> usually, sometimes it's hot flashes, but you, but it's that's not at the top of people's list because I think there's this idea that they're just going to go away. I don't is know. It, is it optimism? Is it is it like, oh, I have it now, but maybe next year it'll go away. And then one year turns into two, turns into seven, turns into 10. It's a combination of optimism and misinformation. You know, you have doctors and you have friends and you have other so-called experts out there who are telling you it's going to go away in a few years when we know that's that's not the case. And you also have, and we could, you know, talk hours about this, about all the advertisements and websites that are selling this worthless stuff, all these botanicals and supplements. So women think, well, you know, if I have those hot flashes, I'm just going to take some black cohosh or this or that, and it's going to go away. I don't know, Jancy. I'm, I'm, I, I wish I could figure it out why it is that we don't get that message out there. And I think it's because people like Rebecca Thurston, um, are not on TikTok and, and Instagram. And the people who are the, the biggest experts in this world are certainly not spending their time on social media. And unfortunately, that's where people are getting their information. Not everybody, but, but a lot of people. But that's why I'm so encouraged by your book because your book is something that women will read because they know you. They know you're a great writer. They trust you because you've been an investigative reporter and because you you do the work. And, and I honestly think that your book and hope that your book is going to have a much, much bigger impact than a lot of the books out there that are written by the experts. And, you know, as I mentioned in my, you know, in my intro, I mean, a lot of these books, not mine, but a lot of these books are really boring. They're really boring. <sighs> So, you know, they're like these encyclopedias of menopause. Who the heck's going to read them? Your book is a great read. I mean, even if I didn't have menopause symptoms, if I'm a woman, I'm thinking, this is just funny. It's a great read. That whole thing. Oh, I love, love, love when the scene that you had um, when you were describing about when you were in the stop and shop and you ran into somebody and you had no clue who they were. So the the alphabet thing, which, you know, I do. And then and you kind of said like, hey, there. Mine is hi, but I make it like five syllables. Hi. <laughs> that was good. Well, I'm sitting good. there, you know, just just who are frantically you trying who are to remember you? who is this person? What is this person's name? And then, you know, and then you say something like you did, like, how's the family? I have no family. I mean, it's just, but you you nail it, not just, I mean, a lot of people talk about their experiences, but you just, you're so funny. You're such a good writer. And and so you sprinkle in really great stuff with the real science. And that's what makes it so approachable. Such a good book. I remember when I was trying to sell the book and I said to some editors, some book editors, like, go to your local library and see what's available in yeah. the menopause section. If there is a menopause, if, if there's like a tiny women's health section, mm-hmm. go look. I went to my own library, which is well-funded and a great library. And there was one menopause book. It was maybe 15 years old. And the books Brown that edges. are there are like, you know, Suzanne Summers book, you know, celebrity books oh. as opposed to two real books. But this is exactly right. what I ran into when um, HarperCollins bought my book, Sex Rx. And that book was supposed to be on postmenopause sexuality. And mm-hmm. and as you know, in the publishing world, once someone buys your book, you, you lose control. And they said to me, well, we actually don't want this to be about postmenopause sexuality. We want it to be about sexual problems in all ages. And mm-hmm. so I basically had to you know, rewrite half the book to, to cover what happens about sexual issues in the 20s and the 30s and the 40s. But they did not want it to be a a menopause book. To your point, the publishers were so afraid of books on menopause. Now, of course, the time is is right for your book because menopause is trending now, as we say. What do you think? But the misinformation for a long time, and it's trending now. Like, what what are your thoughts on that? I know I keep sending stuff back to you, but. You know, I like to hear. I've been screaming from the rafters for 20 years about this and doing my best yes. to get the information out and to talk mm-hmm. about it. 
And then I find people who just started talking about it yesterday are suddenly the go-tos. Like they're the ones that are the experts and they know something about it. And even when the New York Times did their big article on menopause, which was a terrific article, but it's like, hey, how how come you didn't talk to me? You know, I've been at this for a long time. So on one hand, I'm thrilled that it's getting out there. On the other hand, I'm not always happy about who's front and center, particularly again with celebrities that are quite frankly selling products that's not always good products. So I find it encouraging, but really, really frustrating, honestly. But you know, but you just keep doing what you do and and put out the good information and and do the good work. And, uh, and that's, and that's what, what you do. But what I did think was noticeable in your book is because you filled it with, with good information in hot and bothered, you never talked about the bad stuff, like what you shouldn't do. And I don't know if that was intentional or I missed it, but it wasn't like you had the list of don't get all these products and they're completely worthless and all that. And I know you came across them. And without naming names, you want to list a few of the products out there that you think are particularly egregious that women are spending their money on? Well, just, I mean, almost almost all the supplements, you have a whole chapter in this in Hot Flesh Hell about compounding pharmacies and they're not yeah. to blame. And there's a lot of, you know, good things about compounding pharmacies if you right. have an allergy. When, when they're used properly, right. Yeah, but the kind of unregulated hormone. Well, it's the prescribers. It's not the pharmacies. And that's prescribers. You know, when I think we mentioned, I I don't remember we ever talked about this, but, you know, I was on Oprah Winfrey um, with Suzanne Summers with the whole compounding thing first came out. (laughs) And I really made a mistake in terms of how I handled that because I was blaming the compounding pharmacies. And Uh the truth is, is that who I really should have blamed were the doctors that were Mm -hmm. not giving their patients good information. And these women patients had no choice but to read Suzanne Summers' book and get these compounded hormones because their own doctors weren't helping them. And so I've really kind of changed. I used to protect doctors. I think all doctors do. We tend to protect our own. And I don't do that anymore, uh, maybe because I've been at it so long. And yeah, but I'm, I'm tired of it. I'm tired of giving doctors a hall pass when in fact, it's fine to know nothing about menopause, but say, I don't know anything about menopause. Let me refer you to someone who does, as opposed to just giving either no information or inaccurate information. So that's, you know, kind of my my agenda about that. But but you and I both rail about all the misinformation out there. You're very um, empathetic about it, that it's true that if they don't know, you know, if they don't know where to get it, of course, it's going to be seductive to get some of this snake oil, but it it doesn't. Well, it's enticing. So, you know, I put out a segment just a few weeks ago, which Mm -hmm. really kind of walks you through what does it mean to be FDA approved? What does it mean to be FDA cleared? What does it mean to be FDA listed? What does it mean to say doctor approved? What does it mean to say clinically proven? All of these words are so confusing to consumers. Nobody really defines what it means. And in most cases, while it's very reassuring and sounds very compelling. The truth Mm -hmm. of the matter is, is that the overwhelming products that are available out there have never been tested in any way, including things that are FDA cleared. Mm -hmm. You can say it's cleared without proving that it actually does what it's supposed to do. So that's part of what I think is very important for us to do in terms of putting out information because I've always said if women are given good information, they'll make the right choices. You just need to give them the right information. And that's not happening. I love that you've long broken the taboo. I mean, you're, you know, a doctor, but you're also very upfront about things and you're, you're, you just have a nice inclusive space for everyone to talk about anything that they want to. And I, I found at the menopause cafe and then beyond, like the more I was forthcoming about what was going on with me, the more people then share their stories. And and it's just, I even was doing it at work now, granted at the times where I work, it's mostly women, but you can, you can say, oh, I'm having a hot flush. And, and it's just, the more you talk about it, I remember when I was talking about peeing my, now I can't stop talking about peeing myself clearly, (laughs) but like, but just bringing it up with my friends and saying, are you peeing yourself? What did you call it? I love that phrase. It was the key in the door. Oh, key, in the door key, key in the door incontinence. Key in the door incontinence. 
Yeah. We've all been there. And it's right. it's always with the groceries. What is that about? It's, it's always so true. right. The groceries. And then you're sitting there doing what I call the pee pee dance that you're you know sitting there and crossing your legs. And then, of course, you look around. If no one's around, you put your hand firmly on your crotch, hoping yes. that you're going to keep the pee from coming out. And then you hop on over to the toilet. And, mm-hmm. and you know, this is where it comes in handy to be wearing yoga pants instead of jeans with zippers and buttons. And yes. it's. Yeah. I mean, it is extremely, extremely common and it's becoming more common for a variety of reasons. And and it is something that we need to pay attention to. The more I talked about it with my friends, the more they all shared similar stories. It's always the groceries. It's kind of amazing. And also that for those of us that had a partner, we kept it from the partner. Like I cleaned up. It was like having a puppy. It was like it, 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 only I was the puppy, you know? Yeah. And, and I didn't tell him. And then finally I thought, okay, I'm just going to tell him like, you know what? I'm being myself. It, yeah. it is what it is. And but the other, the other piece know. of it too, speaking of partners is a lot of women when they're having sex and particularly when they orgasm, mm-hmm. they lose urine. And the only thing that's worse than peeing in your pants is peeing on your partner. And so what ends up happening is, yeah. yeah. I, you know, so, so women have, end up going into avoidance mode. And again, the guys think that she doesn't like him or isn't interested in him or her when in fact it's just about, Oh God, I'm going to pee. I'm going to pee. And it just, and the, the rates of incontinence and orgasmic dysfunction that go together are sky high. You know, they are very closely tied because it's all about pelvic floor muscles and what happens to those pelvic floor muscles during midlife and beyond. So um, we, we need to talk about this stuff. We need to get this information out there. And that's this is going to be in your in your book that you're going to hopefully get around I, to. Write. I do, yes, that will be in the orgasm book. I have it actually in Sex RX, the book that no one reads, um, that was about uh, sexual function across the ages. And I and I talk a lot about the impact of incontinence on sexual function because it is so closely tied. And actually, I'm I'm doing some work right now in the incontinence world because I think when we talk about making a difference, that is one of the realms in which there is so such a huge unmet need. And that there's so much that we can do to get women to not be peeing in their pants. This is not something that people need to accept. This is not something that is norm should be normalized. So that's kind of my my the, the next thing that I'm going to be really focusing on after the orgasm book. If I'm not tired of writing, then I'll do the incontinence book. But we'll see. We'll see how that goes. Can you have a strong post? You know postmenopausally, can you have orgasms that are just as strong? Is it going to be 80% of what it was? Or or I know it's all subjective. It depends on the person, but generally speaking. The, the answer to that question is for most people, yes, not for everyone. Mm-hmm. And the reason why it's so challenging for a lot of women is that you depend on having healthy nerve endings in the clitoris. Mm-hmm. And when that New research came out a few months ago saying there were 10,000 nerve endings in the clitoris and everyone thought that was such good news. And I'm thinking, no, this is terrible news because the more nerves there are in that teeny tiny little space, the smaller they are and the more likely they are to not age well. And in fact, there's excellent research that shows that the smallest nerves are the ones that are the first to go. But the good news is, is that the nerves that respond to vibration happen to be larger nerves, and those are the last to go, which is why every single woman uh, needs to have multiple vibrators that are fully charged at the ready to, to answer your question. But for some women, even in spite of doing things to keep their clitoris healthy, like using estrogen or uh, using a vibrator, there are so many medical conditions that can impact on nerve health, like diabetes and multiple sclerosis. So I would love to say that it will be just as good for everybody. I can't promise that, but certainly we have a lot of tools uh, to make it, to make it better. You know, there's one thing to have an orgasm that's pleasurable. It's another thing to have an orgasm that's possible. So, you know, at at the very least, I'd like to see it become possible for every single woman. That's the next book. Dr. Stryker talks about orgasm, everybody come. I don't think that's going to be the title. I'm already going to everybody's junk mail. That would for sure, that would send me right there. You are so good at titles. You could, (laughs) I I would love to have you in a meeting with all of us because- all right. I, and, and full disclosure, that one, that one was my title, but my daughter, who's also a writer and a sex therapist, and I, I have an episode with her, but she mm-hmm. was, she was a journalist before she became a sex therapist. And she uh, has the best 
titles ever. And whenever I'm writing a book and I can't come up with a title that I think is clever enough, <laughs> I call Rachel and say, I need help. I need help. And she's like, boom, she just like, I don't know how she does it, but oh, she is talent. so good and she's so quick and, and she's writing a book now. Oh, look at you lighting up talking that about your daughter's book. Book. And you're, Talk about your daughter for a minute because I, all right, I just finished reading How to Not Hate Your Husband After Having Kids. Did I get the title right? Grabber of a title, right? Yeah. Yep. It is a grabber of a title. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I read the book not because it was relevant to me, but I was trying to get to understand you better and your writing style. So I thought, oh, I'll, I'll read it and I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'm just going to read a little bit just to kind of get a sense of your style and how you approach sure. things. I couldn't put it down. It was so good. It was so good. So so now Thank now you. since I know, I feel like I know your daughter because I lived through you know, <laughs> the, the early years of your daughter in your book. So Take a, take a couple minutes and be mom and talk about your daughter. <laughs> it's all copy, isn't it? And she's been, now that she's a teenager, she's 13. I um, am forbidden to write about her, which I understand. I'm yeah. keeping it private. When she was a kid, she didn't mind. I wrote that book because, um, and it's funny because I was thinking of titles, like originally we were tossing around the title of how to love your husband after kids. And all the people on in meetings would be like, no one's going to buy that. You really have to like, you know, go right between the eyes and, and, and call it what it is because yeah, my husband and I fought a lot and I was the one who, um, I don't know what your dynamic is, but, but I'm the one who's has a worse temper and he kind of freezes me out. And so that was our thing back and forth. So my kid would say, don't yell at daddy. And I was like the Harridan, you know, I was like Medusa and and he was, yeah, uh, I tend to get quiet Oh, you're a, you're a get quiet. But I think also, I think that's the surgeon in me. What I found is if I was, you know, in the operating room and if it was a challenging surgery and I found that screaming at your assistants and the scrub nurse doesn't really help. So Mm -hmm. I would always just get very quiet and very focused and say, okay, hand me this instrument, or I need you to do this now, please. Or I need you to retract there. And I took that home with me, you know, so that if things weren't going well at home, I was never a screamer. I just never was. I was like, quiet was scary in my house. The quieter mom got, the worse, you know, we knew there was a lot of blood loss, you know, I was really quiet. Oh my God, that's hilarious. My daughter is, she's going to be 14 in May and um, and I can go right back there to eighth grade. Can you, like, I, I find that is a difference. My mom just, you know, she just couldn't go back when I was feeling out of sorts, she just couldn't relate. She just was yeah. annoyed. Again, she also had three teenage girls. So, but I can go right back there. And so I, I remember the turmoil of what that was like. Any of her moods sort of bounce off me. It's yeah. hard though, isn't it? It's, it's hard, but it's, you know. It is and it isn't, you know, as, um, as you know, from, from doing this, most of it is, is just being a listener and being yeah. non-judgmental. One of the things that that I loved in How Not to Hit Your Husband book was when you talked about strategies that they would use for someone during like a terrorist attack and how you just listen and then you repeat the last thing that they said. And I think that that's something that teenage girls respond to as well. You know, oh. everyone hates me at school and everyone but me is going to Hawaii for spring break. So oh, yeah. you think everyone hates you and, oh yeah. And everyone's going to Hawaii, but you for spring break and mm-hmm. that in and of itself, just being, we all want to be heard. We all want to be heard. And the same is true when it comes to menopause, because what yeah. we found in the menopause clinic is, I mean, let's face it, your typical doctor appointment is about, you know, 10 minutes and you've got a lot to cover. Mm-hmm. And we right. found that by the time people came to the menopause clinic, they'd been to many doctors and they were really, really frustrated. And, right. and we realized that what they really needed was to be heard in addition to getting some help. So Uh, what we would do is we had them fill out this very long questionnaire that went through all their symptoms. And then before the first appointment, we had one of our wonderful um, nurse practitioners go through the questionnaire, write up a summary, and then she would call the patient before the off before the first appointment and say, I know you're coming in next week to see Dr. So-and-so, but I just kind of want to walk through what you wrote to us to make sure we have it right. Your skin's crawling. You're not sleeping. Your vagina's like the Sahara Desert. You hate everyone and, you know, you can't remember anything. And and that in and of itself, before they even walked in for their first appointment, people were feeling like, okay, they get it. Ugh. I'm being validated. And 
because we knew that we wouldn't have time to cover that at the first appointment, quite frankly. And then we would always ask mm-hmm. the final question, which is, what's the most important thing for you to fix? Because that's what we're going to do first. You know, but they but in spite of only having right. one important thing that they wanted fixed, they wanted us to know about all the other stuff. Died of happiness. If somebody had summed up what was going on with me and then read it back to me, like what a what a you're halfway there with that exercise. Like how nice is that? Yeah. I really feel like we did. The chairman of our department would always say, why are your patient satisfaction rates so high? I said, well, because we help women have orgasms. And I want you to take a few minutes and just talk about what you want people to know about your book. Why should they go out and buy Hot and Bothered? I know why, but you, I want to hear in your words why they, why they should. And their hard-earned money. No, I know. And um, it's because you will feel hopefully understood and because... I went to some of the best experts in the country and I I heard it straight from them that I can translate to you. If you can't get an appointment with some of these department chairs, then you can get their advice. And because, because it was a book I wish that I could have read. And again, as you said, like, I try to make it funny. I don't downplay the science and I don't want it to be. No, and you don't dumb it down at all. At yeah. all. No, no, seriously, that's what happens a lot yeah. is people dumb it down and you do not dumb it down, You but you make it very accessible. Or just a nonstop doom and gloom. A lot of it is difficult. You know, yeah. it isn't the end. And even when I interviewed uh, Dr. Maki at the time, I had, was having brain fog. And she said, yeah. very likely, statistically, you will get through it and you will be sharp again. I did. She was right. But you know why it's not doom and gloom? Because mm. there are solutions. It's one thing to say, yes. you know, this, this and that and the other is happening to you. And I'm so sorry, but there's nothing you can do but accept it. That's doom and gloom. When it comes to menopause, there's very little that we can't make better, if not eliminate altogether. It's the exact opposite of doom and gloom. It's like, oh, you're having problems with painful intercourse? There's something we can do about that. You're having problems with an itchy vulva? There's something we can do about that. You're having problems with the fact that you can't sleep at all, or you're having hot flashes? We can make that go away. That's the message. Yes, I'm acknowledging all this stuff, but it's the worst. It's the furthest thing from doom and gloom. That can I revise what I said? Because okay, that is my message: that there are solutions, which I think a lot of people still don't know about. And you're yeah. right; it can be, if not cured, mitigated, managed. Yeah. There's so many different yeah. things. Cured is a word you should be suspicious of. Whenever, whenever you see a product advertised that says this is going to cure you, and you notice, I'm very careful never to use the word cure. It's always right at least make better, maybe make it go away, but at least make it better. The other thing that I think is so important for women to understand is if their own doctor hasn't given them a solution, it doesn't mean that there isn't a solution. It means they need to see an expert. And normally when I'm interviewed by someone for a a magazine or who's writing an article and they'll say, oh, so I should tell women to go talk to their doctors. And I always say, no. You should tell women to go talk to a menopause expert that might be their doctor, but don't assume that your doctor is a menopause expert. And don't most people, they don't know that there are menopause experts, that there are specialists that you can see. My my friends who are well-read on health, who, who a lot of reporters themselves, they're like, wait, what? Menopause expert? A menopause specialist? But that's because there's no, there's no training in it in terms of if you go to a fertility expert, you know, there's fellowships, meaning you finish your residency in OBGYN. And then if you want additional training, you can become an oncologist. You can become a fertility specialist. You can become a high-risk obstetric specialist. There is no fellowship for menopause. I mean, think about that. There's no structured program for people to become menopause experts. So if people choose to become a menopause expert, it's something they do on their own. And that's the difference. That's why people don't know about it. You know, again, what I also want to get at is you don't have to see people are afraid of the expense or this or that, you don't have to see a menopause expert forever, right? It can be a couple of appointments, depending on what's going on with you and your symptoms. Absolutely. And and that's actually one of the reasons why I wrote my books and why I do the podcast is the idea that if someone goes in with good information and you see that menopause expert, you don't need to have that menopause expert spend a lot of their time saying, okay, when it comes to vaginal estrogen, there's a ring, there's a tablet, there's a cream. You're going to know all of that already. So that you can then say to that expert, I I know about these products. I think this might be the best one for me. Do you think that's the best one? What would you suggest? You know, if you go in educated, you will get far more out of that visit 
and you will need far less visits. Because to your point, if it was your kid that was sick and you couldn't find a solution, you would pay any amount of money to any specialist in the country to get help. Right. When it comes to women for them for themselves, it's a completely different thing. And and certainly women have to change that mindset and say, no, I need to see an expert, even if it means paying out of pocket. And I appreciate the fact that for a lot of people, that's just not doable and they have no choice but to stay in network or to see who's on their plan. But you can still, the workaround, of course, is to read your book, to read my books, to get the information so that when you walk in, you can say, I've read about this and I would really like you to write a prescription for and fill in the blank. And chances are they will. And address your own quality of life. Give We women need to give ourselves permission to improve our quality of life. If you're, I'm going to say it again, pain yourself. Yeah. Like that, that is a quality of life. You keep issue. coming back to the pain yourself. This is a thing. Yeah. It's obviously on my mind, but, but again, it, because it impacted my life so much. And I remember talking to Dr. Rubin, Rachel Rubin, and she was saying, you, women, there's not even the language to address quality of life, you know, right. I, and I'm a urologist and, and I don't, you know, women don't know what to tell me. And I'm, you know, not to make women sound like they, they don't know how to take care of themselves, but like you, you do, you put your other people well, first. First of all, people don't advocate for themselves, but also they're not always connecting the dots. You know, right. like the reason why they're not doing high impact exercise isn't because they hate it, but because they know they're going to wet their pants. You know, right. maybe the reason someone is avoiding sex isn't because they hate their partner, but because they're going to pee on their partner. You know, no one is connecting those dots. And mm-hmm. That's what we need to do. We need to connect those dots. So thank you for helping connect the dots. And I can't wait to tell lots and lots of people about your book because it is so terrific. And I know you're super busy because you've just launched and you're giving lots of talks and you are out there as you should be. And thank you for taking this time to talk to me. My pleasure. Thank you for all the good work you do. You know, I had to get that in there, but you know how I feel about you, Dr. Stryker. (laughs) Well, thank you. I'm Dr. Lauren Stryker, and thank you for joining me. You will find lots more information in my Inside Information books available on Amazon.com. And follow Francie as she navigates her way through vaginal dryness, hot flashes, and pretty much every menopausal symptom you can think of. See the light, now I'm sleeping through